Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Archonnect Sessions. So this is the fifth installment of our six-part series of conversations with the architecture community as we have checked in with fellow architects and designers and members of the industry. I'm here with my co-host, Ken and Donna. You guys uh, hanging in there, doing okay? Doing okay, yep. <laughs> All right. As well as can be expected in this uh, civil uprest. <laughs> yeah, the last time last time we checked in together as a group was prior to the uh, George Floyd incident and the resulting protests that have been happening now for 10 days. This all started in Minneapolis, where, where you are, Ken. How are things looking over there? How do, how do, how do things feel? Um, we're still, you know, we're peacefully protesting, or we. They're still peacefully protesting, which is fantastic, um, holding the... Holding the city and the state, um, they're holding their feet to the fire, so to speak. So the activism is is uh, is, is great, um, and there's been some changes. So that that's a we're starting to see some positive outcomes from the from the voices. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm remaining cautiously optimistic about about what has been going on the last week. I, I really am hoping that this time there's going to be some real changes made that have been due for literally decades. It's been really inspiring seeing people come together in support of this movement. I don't know if you guys caught any of George Floyd's funeral, but Al Sharpton made some really a really good uh, speech talking about how, you know, this is one of the first times that we're seeing a lot of white people, you know, joining yeah. in on these on these uh protests against police brutality and just racial injustice in general and, you know, hopefully that's a sign that there is kind of a cultural shift towards promoting a more equal and just society. So, so yeah. You know, and, and since we're an architecture podcast, it would, I would be remiss if we didn't note that the um, there's a lot of be, a lot of work being done by a lot of groups virtually. Noma has been a large part of that. Is it Ben Lee, Donna? No, uh, Brian Lee. Yes, Brian Lee. Brian Lee. Brian Lee with Noma is um, putting together a an action platform, a platform for action, mm -hmm. um, to, which is fantastic. Together I with think, uh, um, Mike Ford and with Mitch McEwen, who is a friend of the podcast. Yeah, they held a uh, uh, design as protest, hashtag design as protest conversation Tuesday, I think of this week and calling for actions on Fridays. So yeah, there's a lot of co good conversations happening out of what is incredibly painful. Yeah. And, and again, I think that the, I know we're going to talk about other things, but I think this is important at least to talk about a little bit. We can talk because we, we should be having top discussions about this going forward. And again, the AIA, five minutes of planning, 55 minutes of writing, um, came out with a dud last week <laughs> of a statement. And um, yet again, <laughs> Minneapolis AIA, uh, the chapter here has actually been the one that's actually um, has been the national leader for making a, a real statement, which is uh, what was certainly expected, um, knowing people that are connected with or affiliated with the Minneapolis and Minnesota AIA. So many groups, many groups, uh, planners, black planners, NOMA, um, have written very eloquently about where we are and our contributions to um, the uh, injustices and, and the, ra the racial terror. So I think uh, AIA came back last night with a, a second attempt and, and um, which 
quite honestly, I didn't expect that they were going to do that. I don't know where the pressure came from, but uh, they certainly heard it. And they came out with a much better statement. But as uh, Mitch McEwen noted today, it's hard to really take those words and hold them close as something that is going to be have meaning, um, given Whitney's speech 50 years ago and the subsequent Robert Ivey's cozying up to a white nationalist president right after the, uh, <laughs> the election. So again, it's a start. I think uh, Brian Lee, Mitch McEwen, Michael and uh, Ford, Dean Newton. And Noma I think it's Newton. We'll have to double check that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think it's not just up to them to hold AIA's uh, hold them hold them accountable. I think it's uh, up to all of us to hold them accountable. And I think um, that's where we move. I think that's collectively. I think that's what's happening in, in the country. Is that fine? This is good. We're moving forward, but it's certainly not enough. So, with that being said, yeah, definitely. You know, it's it's so great to see people coming together right now and issuing statements and everything. But the real challenge is going to be sticking to these kind of commitments that people are expressing going forward. And I just want to take this opportunity to really acknowledge you, Ken, because, I mean, you have been at the forefront for pushing equality, specifically equality among the the black African-American minority communities, LGBTQ plus communities. I mean, you're 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 talking about this stuff every day when it's not necessarily in the mainstream news. So I really appreciate that. And I'm really proud of the work that you have been kind of integrating into your daily practice. I think it's something that a lot of us can can uh, learn from. I totally agree. You've been you've been one who's opened my eyes in many ways over the years, and uh, it's uh, it's amazing your commitment. I have I have yeah, and I have uh, just to say I have a lot of work to do myself. I've been reading some stuff, and and I recognize the, some of the things that I've done in some of those descriptions, and um, it's you know what. So I'll just say this: Linda has been uh, my guidepost, kind of helping me w- walk through this because it's good to make mistakes. And uh, man, white people are making a lot of mistakes. But the, the, I think the thing, I, the one thing I'm that I'm trying because here's what happens: you make a mistake, you embarrass yourself, you get upset because you're embarrassed because you don't believe that's the person you are. And and it's it's okay, it's okay. I mean, we have to have to constantly say, okay, you made that mistake. Figure out. I'm trying to figure out. Okay, how do I not make that mistake? How do I not? How do I recognize what is that about? What am I doing? Why did I say that? So I'm trying to, I'm trying to, trying not to run because that's the easy, I mean, man, this, this, this work is hard because, you know, you, you grow up a certain way and you don't think you're a certain person. But the thing is, is that we have this privileged kind of life mm-hmm. that we don't have to think about the daily shit that people have to deal with who are black and brown in this country. And I don't have mm-hmm. to think about that. It's not my life. I don't have to think about it. I can kind of, I got my black friends. I got my, Chinese. I got my, I got all these different friends I have. I got my, you know, I have various clients who are, who are not white. And I'm thinking, well, you know, it's great. I, 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 I'm, I don't know anything about their life. I don't know what it is to walk in their shoes. I don't know what it means to, to be in a car going down a road and have a cop car pull behind. I, I mean, I, you know, I don't know that. I don't know that fear. So the easy thing to do is to run. Run from the, you know, because you're embarrassed. It's, it's, you know, I was, and I'll just share this one story. So when I said, look, <clears throat> okay, fine. I can't get out there and protest because the part of the reason is, is that I can't be the reason why my mother buries another son. 
And I'm so angry at what's happened this past two weeks that I'm going to be out there and I'm going to not be, I, I can't, I'm not going to be in a space where I'm going to be very rational. And that's not what they, that's not what black people need me to be. They don't need me to be being that guy that they're trying to, don't, don't firebomb that thing. That's not what we're here about. So I, I can't be there. So I'm doing it the other way. I'm trying to amp, I'm trying to amplify voices. I'm trying to put my money where my mouth is and put it out and, you know, buy black artists, buy black art, you know, by committing myself to being uncomfortable to try to be a better, not just a better ally, but a co-conspirator, because that's what Brian, Brian's been talking about. So I joined Noma this week. I said, you know, I've been wanting to do that since we had Kimberly on and I'm finally kind of financially set that I'm like, okay, I'm committed. I'm not joining the AIA right now. So I'm going to join Noma and I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to be the only white person there. And I'm certainly going to feel uncomfortable, like I'm occupying, again, black space. But I think that's, I, I think, I, I think, I don't know. I think they're looking for co-conspirators. They're looking for, because this is not just, you know, their problem, it's our problem. I was on my first virtual meeting last night and, you know, it was, I felt okay about it. And um, hopefully I get to do more and, and contribute and try to be part of a, part of a solution for us, for everybody. So. Yeah, it's not easy. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm the ten- type of person that tends to easily kind of jump to a position of defense and pride. And I think that's one of the biggest struggles right now for a lot of people who have never identified in the slightest as being racist or bigoted or, you know, in, in any, but, you know, it's, you, you need to kind of get past that and recognize just the, you know, the privilege that, that we as white people have had and that, you know, that we, we can't just easily say that we understand the struggle or we're not part of the problem. So it's uh, my, my wife and I have been doing a lot of work this week. We've been spending a lot of time talking as a team in the office about these things. And, uh, there's, you know, there's many different, many different, uh, angles to look at and to understand. And, and, uh, you know, the key is to just remain open-minded and empathetic and, and understand that you uh, that we don't know we don't we're not exactly who we think we are all the time so it's it's and it's it's not easy it's it's really not easy but it's it's not supposed to be easy and you know the harder people work at it the the sooner we're going to get to a place where people can feel like equal members of our society yeah and imagine you know paul you're not you know you're not american i mean are you a citizen now uh no i'm not I okay, have so, never, <laughs> yeah, I'm still a Canadian citizen, even though I've spent okay. most of my life So, I mean, here. it's, it's a, even a, even that is, adds to it, adds another layer of difficulty because this is, I mean, this is our, this is, you know, mine and Donna's collective history, you know, it's, and, and I'm always interested in when uh, European immigrants come here, you know, in the past I don't know, 50 years and they think that. They think that um, the one, and I have to correct them all the time because it's an interesting, it's an interesting concept that you can become an American after after Jim Crow, after slavery, after all of the shit that that America created, and come here thinking that you're on virgin, you're on, you're a virgin in virgin territory. And I'm like, but no, when you become an American, you adopt, you take on the Constitution, you take on all of the flaws. Those are all part of your now you're an American. You're not an American from this day. You're always an American now. You have taken on the mantle of the tyranny of bad amendments in the Constitution where it was three-fifths. I mean, that that legacy is part of now your history. And 
that doesn't that work doesn't stop doesn't doesn't apply to you just because you're not you know not originally like born in this country that you were born someplace else now you're an american and this is all the work that we all have to do it's difficult yeah i mean canadians have been working really hard for for much longer than the Americans, from my point of view, in terms of recognizing indigenous rights. You know, in Canada, there is still a long way to go in that in that respect. But the conversation is is in the mainstream. You know, the uh, the, the rights of the indigenous people in, in, in Canada is not something that is, you know, found deep down into, you know, news websites. It's 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 at the forefront and it's changing people's people's attitudes are changing about it. It would be nice to see that also here because I think that that's yeah. a whole uh, you know, part of our society in in all of the Americas. I mean, it's there was no borders back when when the indigenous people were were ruling this yeah. land. Yeah. But I feel like this is a a fight that has been happening in Canada for a long time, which can be, you know, there's there's some similarities, there's some huge differences between the two, but it is it is. I think it's not too too different in in recognizing the rights of of everyone equally. Yeah, and and you know we can we can segue to Will then because you know I think Will has got an interesting story that we he should talk about someday on the podcast too because he's had he's talked about on on our connect a lot about the challenges of being mm-hmm. North American in, in Japan. He's so he's talked about, you know, feeling, and that's, that's an interesting feeling to have and that you're the, that you're going to another where you're the minority and the majority is, is uh, not white. And, and you're going there into this different culture and trying to understand how to, how to, how to capture, understand and relate that experience back to um, how to reconnect with that experience and bring it back to the States. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I guess we can uh, introduce our first conversation in this episode. It's with Will Galloway. Many people who have been on Arconnect in the last I don't know fifteen years would would recognize him uh, either by you know his his name or Jump, his username that he sometimes uses. He is he's a fellow Canadian, but he's been living in Tokyo for many years. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how long, but he's, you know, he started a family there and that is his home. And we spoke with him just recently. He is still literally stuck in in Toronto where he teaches at Ryerson. He's not allowed to go back to Japan, so he's been stuck there for a while. Not a horrible place to be stuck, but, you know, it's nice to be able to go back home where, and, you know, and that that is Tokyo for him. So yeah, let's let's listen to our conversation with Will now. So my my name is Will Galloway. I'm a Canadian. I, I spent 20 years more or less living in in um, Tokyo and before that in, in London. And I suppose I moved I moved to Toronto in the middle of the pandemic, that just as it was getting going. Uh, so I have a small office in Tokyo called Front Office Tokyo, uh, because we're we're really uh, original that way. And I also teach at Keio University, which is uh, also in Tokyo. So the idea was, you know, before the pandemic, I I moved here to Toronto in January, and the idea was that I would be going back and forth between Toronto and Tokyo, which is great because it's a direct flight. And then March came, I went to Tokyo, and I, I think I was there in the early March and I came back to Canada in the middle of March and 
two days after I came back, um, my university uh, here in Toronto, which is, is called Ryerson University, so I should have said that earlier, it closed down. And since then, I've been running my practice and teaching at two universities from my kitchen table. Wow. So did you expect every the world to kind of uh, come to a halt in March when you left Tokyo to, uh, to go to uh, Toronto? No. So before we went, I knew something was going on. And because of the, the cruise ship that was um, sitting you know, in Tokyo, you know, I, I can't remember how many passengers were infected, but I, I guess it was hundreds of people, right? So we, we knew that Tokyo had a problem. And at that time when I left, Canada did not. So I, I was looking at the advisories. And actually at that time, the United States was, was more, um, I wouldn't say they were on top of it, but they were more worried about the direction of things. So they were saying, maybe don't go to Japan if you don't need to. Uh, but Canada was like, no, it's cool. Just, you know, wash your hands kind of thing. So I checked with my university if they thought it was a problem to go back because, um, you know, I, I kind of needed to go back to, to uh, Tokyo at that time. And they were cool with it. So I went and in the meantime, when I was in Tokyo, it was, it was as if nothing was happening actually. And then I got back to Canada and everybody was starting to mildly freak out. And, um, I, I guess basically, you know, COVID had, had really arrived, you know, while I was away. So I kind of thought it would go away, to be honest. I, I thought, I don't want to say that I thought it was a small thing, but I kind of expected that, you know, we, we would keep track of where people were and, and, you know, just keep it contained, which was obviously a stupid thing to think. Um, it, that's not what happened. Well, I, I don't think anybody was expecting it to turn into what it did. I mean, I, I honestly thought that when everybody was ordered to st- shelter at home. I thought, I really thought it was going to be a two week period where people would, we would bring down the numbers dramatically. There would be the, you know, incubation period would be up and we would be able to kind of continue back in, in a, in a careful fashion. But, you know, three months later, clearly that's not the case. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit of insight into, uh, how this has affected you as, as an educator. Yeah. So um, I, I would say the basic thing is that um, I'm kind of both excited and terrified um, because we, we just, uh, I guess, officially decided that we're not opening in September. Um, and I, I don't know, well, you, you all kind of do teaching, right? Or you're kind of out there anyways. You know, teaching, especially if it's like a big group of people and you're giving a lecture or something, it's basically a performance. And, you know, you need to see if you know, everyone is paying attention or, or understanding you and sort of shift the way you're saying things. So I'm, I'm really worried about, you know, in, in, at least for lecture courses and things like that, where there's supposed to be a dialogue with, you know, 60 people. I, I don't know how to do that. And that sort of freaks me out. Well, on the other hand, my experience with studio um, was not as bad as I thought it was going to be, to be honest. So we kind of had the, the benefit of having, uh, I guess, a month and a half of, of being in studio. And so the students all knew each other and, you know, things were already moving forward in, in some kind of direction and a, a groove had been set, I suppose you could say. And when we shut down, amazing, I'm sort of, I'm still kind of stuck in this bit of awe that, that the students just said, okay, we're online now. And some of them went to other countries, some of them went to their homes uh, not far away, some to other cities, and we just continued. And Zoom appeared, and everybody learned how to use that. 
And the, the only thing I really needed to do was to buy a, a Windows Surface so I could draw uh, on the students, you know, the, the stuff that they were presenting to me so we could talk. Um, I, I would say it's not as good as being there, uh, but that worked. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about the uh, just the the difference of experience in being in an office, because this today was actually my children's last day of school, you know, and they've been they've been doing remote virtual schooling since since mid-March, as most of the country has been. Um, so I asked them what it was like when they had just kind of wrapped up with with all of their my daughter is in middle school, so she had a bunch of classes. And they were both like, oh, that's fine. And I was like, well, wasn't it kind of sad? And they were like, no. I was like, really? I, I always felt like the last day of school was pretty sad. And they're like, well, if we were in school with everybody, it would have been sad. But, you know, we just had to log off. And uh, I mean, it's a very it's a very different experience not being with your with your classmates and your teachers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a big thing. Uh, I mean, my, my daughter is in grade two. Uh, we we got to enroll her. She she's never met her teacher, but he, he's absolutely brilliant. Uh, he's so so. This is the bit I'm actually worried about because I'm I'm watching this this guy you know recording basically YouTube episodes for his two you know, grade two class, and they are so good. And I realized like basically that's what I'm gonna have to do, <laughs> but it's gonna be like architecture, you know, and and you know this is the city, and you know how the how do you you know give you know all, I mean. <laughs> I think when I'm in front of people, I, I can sort of express my passion and people get it. And they go, oh yeah, cities are awesome, cool. And they'll, they'll, they'll take part. But doing that, you know, I basically have to become a YouTuber and a TikToker or, you know, all this stuff that I have no clue how to do. And, and this is a terrifying bit. But, you know, if we do it right, you know, education is going to, it's going to turn a new corner, which I think is probably, you know, it's probably a really good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, in education and beyond education and practice and just in yeah. life in general, everybody is being forced to learn certain skills that while we're not going to be utilizing those skills exclusively when things return to normal, we will have a new skill set that we can complement, you know, a traditional uh, way of life to kind of make make things a little easier and more more efficient, at least. Yeah, ab absolutely. So th the only thing that I, I really am, am, I mean, for me personally, I'm, I'm freaking about how to teach, uh, you know, w you know, uh, when I can't be in front of everybody, you know, taking advantage of all the, these asynchronous tools, you know, when you record stuff and then chat and all that. But on the student side of things, I I'm a bit worried about losing, you know, that, that sense of camaraderie or, you know, that, that idea that, well, well, I mean, let's face it, I mean, you can have like the best teacher in the world, but, you know, the real place where you actually learn to draw or think about architecture, all that stuff is from your classmates. And, you know, being there, you know, for you know, four years or five years, you know, with the same people day after day, uh, you learn more from them, I think, than anyone. And how to do that when, you know, there's, there's, you know, you're basically in your room. So how to have that connectivity, I, I think, is going to be the real problem to solve. Have you checked in with your students to see if they are collaborating or helping each other out outside of the formal class sessions or studio sessions? Um, not not so much. I mean, we, we had um, group projects this term. So we know that it, at least in groups of two or three, they were able to collaborate and work really well. And, you know, actually, a lot of them, they're really good at Revit. So they said that one of the cool things was that they could just um, 
you know, e- even though they're separate, they could work on the same files and so on. Uh, that's something that they took advantage of immediately, which was cool. And I think they're just using Zoom as well. And I mean, that seems to be working, but I, I wonder how you get 20 or 30 students to talk, you know, like, you know, and you, you, you know, you can like, if you're in studio, you, you went, you walk in and you talk to one person and you go to the next table and you say, oh my God, that model's beautiful. How did you do that? And that kind of stuff. I, I don't know how you do it yet. So have you also been teaching with your, uh, your students in Tokyo? During this time, yeah, I just started. Uh, I guess a few weeks ago, uh, maybe a month and a bit. The students in Tokyo are finding it a lot harder. This, this is my very subjective experience of, of a single studio, so I, I don't want it to speak for Japan. But I, I kind of wonder why. I kind of wonder why they find it so hard. And I, I think a big part of it is that I mean, we're still using foam cutters. Uh, in in Japan, I would say more than here, where it's all Revit and 3D and, and Rhino, the Japanese way of working, I think, is much more of a you know, really talking to each other directly. And uh, I I can, I mean, they're doing the work, but I, I get the feeling that they're struggling and probably not talking as much to each other with the Zoom and all these other things. And and, and this is this is kind of a, a joke, but also true. Uh, Japan is. I don't know how many other countries are out there, but Japan is one of the countries that still relies on faxes for almost everything. Um, so all of a sudden, what? you know, to go from faxes to Zoom, uh, I mean, that's they, they didn't do the bit in between. Uh, and I, I think that's a, it's a jump. <laughs> wow, faxes. Yeah. And, and by the way, you can get spam on faxes. I, I didn't know that was a thing uh, until we hooked ours up. <laughs> I I actually didn't even know we had a fax machine until we got a spam fax. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So yeah. So so that's more challenging. I, I'm not sure how Japan's going to deal with it. But you know, luckily the the virus doesn't seem to be hitting them so hard. So I, I think uh, they'll probably be opening in September, and uh, it'll just be sort of a bad memory for them. Uh, I hope. As I recall, though, uh, Japan was the first country that I heard of that had that that shut down schools nationwide early early on i mean maybe maybe that was part of the reason why japan has not been hit as hard as other parts of the world yeah you know i i I really don't know uh when i went back in march my my kids had i think it was really the day after or something like that the 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 shutdown and my kids were all at home i i'm I'm not sure i mean maybe they've been doing it longer so they just didn't have that run-up that that helped them to get the classes going, and that's why it's a bit harder now. But on the other hand, that could be why the the virus hasn't spread as much or has as, um, had as much of an impact. Mm. And what about your practice? How how has have these changes in the world affected that? Yeah, um, so we, we were kind of lucky because because I actually have been traveling a lot for the last few years. We had already set up some some kind of systems uh, so we could work remotely, or at least I could, and, and the office was used to me being away. So, I mean, just things like, you know, Dropbox and, and Skype and, and now Zoom and so on. But um, the cool thing, and, and I must say, I mean, amidst all of the, the bad stuff that's happened with this, um, I, I'm kind of grateful for all the beta testing that the whole world is doing uh, for me so that I can run my office remotely because the the amount of learning going on right now, I, I think 
I'm going to take all the good lessons and, and uh, use them. It's, it's been awesome. Uh, and, you know, some of the things immediately, um, the, the students actually taught me about a, a plugin for Rhino that's really awesome that um, allows us to do walkthroughs of um, uh, Rhino models. And once I saw that, we it's, it's really cheap. Uh, I don't know if we're allowed to plug software, but it's called Enscape. So uh, because all of Japan is also shut down, you know, we're presenting to our clients uh, online, which is awesome because now I can be there. And I don't have to rely on my, my partner to do it. Um, and we can do walkthroughs of these buildings. And I tell you, the reaction from the clients from suddenly sort of doing this video game like walkthrough of the of the buildings, it's way better than any reaction we've had from um well, you know, uh, basic, you know, what we usually use was plans and renderings and, and things like that. Um, so that's been actually a really positive thing. And um, on the other side, too, I mean, just, just by, well, a little bit by plan, it's, it's we've been working uh, in Europe a bit, in Belgium, and we have a, a project in Ireland right now. Because of that, because, you know, before we were online and they were in their offices, but now everybody's online. It, it kind of has leveled the playing field a little bit. And it, it means that how we interact as offices has become less like they're local architects and more like we're really collaborating because distance is, you know, it's, it's evaporated. The entire meaning uh, has changed. Uh, and I, I must say that you know, just for me, that, that's a really great thing. Um, the only thing that I, I find hard is I, I actually would like to go back to Tokyo. And I can't. They don't want me there. They made a rule that foreigners can't go back to uh, Japan. It doesn't matter what kind of visa you have or what kind of circumstances you're, you're in. Uh, even if you have a company to run, uh, you're just not allowed back in. So that, that's been a little bit annoying or, or frustrating. But on the other hand, at least until this week, because uh, Tokyo is now opening up, uh, it wouldn't really matter because I would just be sitting at a desk doing the same thing. But going forward, I kind of wonder how this is going to happen. Do you have any idea of when they may lift that? Uh, they're, they're talking about it now. One of my partners was stuck in Israel uh, for <laughs> several months, I guess it, it, it's ended up being. And his wife was stuck in Germany. Uh, so they were actually you know, both planning to go back to Tokyo. And they they finally have bought an air ticket and apparently they're going to be able to go back. So it, I'm, I'm not sure what that means for me though, uh, because um, I, I could go back, but I, I'm not sure if everything is, I don't know if I could come back to Canada. It's actually my concern now. <laughs> so I, I think I'm just going to stay put. You have to pick up, pick a place. Well, I mean, between Japan and Canada, those are pretty, pretty good options. It's uh, yeah, not too bad being stuck in Canada, I guess, but, but yeah, that is concerning that, that you aren't able to return home, which which is Tokyo. How do you, as a as a firm owner, what are your thoughts on the next few months or even you know year or two? Well, we, I, I suppose, like almost every firm, uh, several projects immediately stopped. So we're kind of in a wait and see pattern. They didn't stop in the sense like. The clients just said, forget it. This is impossible now. They just said, wait. And I think that's probably happening everywhere. So it means we have a bit of a challenge in making plans. I mean, we, we can't make plans for those projects. We just have to hope that when projects come back, we can deal with them. Uh, we can get staff to come in or, or something. 
Um, one of the things we did notice, we, we had a small design project that just started back up a week ago. It didn't hear anything from a, a client for a month and a half, two months. And, and it turns out they were getting their company in shape so that they could come out of, you know, this situation. And they did. And, and what happened was that uh, they said, please come back to work immediately. And by the way, the schedule hasn't changed. So we're suddenly being asked to do, um, to do a lot more work uh, in a very short time. And I expect that's the wow. best outcome, you know, cause the, the worst one would be like, okay, sorry, we're, it's done. You know, that, that would be worse. So, so that's one thing. Um, the other stuff is, I mean, just as an office, I think working online turns out to be awesome. So I, I think we're just going to do that. Uh, and, I, I don't think we care about being um, so nailed down to a single place anymore. Uh, and I, um, this is partially because we're, we're really thinking how to get out of Tokyo, you know, as, as an office, um, because I think we're starting to hit ceilings there. Um, so this maybe is an opportunity and we just have to figure this out and, and you know, come out of it with more work. But you know, how to do that, I don't know, but that wasn't on our agenda uh, a month ago. So do you feel like this experience is going to kind of permanently change the way you and your and your practice functions? Uh, at least to start with. In terms of in terms of remote work? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I don't, uh, I, I, you know, you kind of have to be in Tokyo and, and, you know, some of the people who are listening to this have probably been in, in Tokyo or similar places. Uh, taking a crowded train for an hour and a half or two hours, you know, to do a job that's, um, let's face it, not the best paying job in the world is not the most rewarding thing. So I, I think, you know, as, as a way to make the job easier for everybody, we should just not have commuting and, you know, come together when we have to, uh, you know, and, and just, I, I think we can make a better uh, workplace model uh, with the caveat being that our office is small. So, you know, it, it's, it's kind of easy for us to do that. Um, I, I think for bigger offices, well, I don't know. Maybe they'll have different versions of this, uh, but I, I think something's going to continue uh, along the ways, you know, we've been learning about. I have I have one more question for you. Well, here in the U.S., there were certain um, there have been certain um, government uh, funded programs to help people and businesses get through this time that that's become very difficult uh, economically. Has Japan uh, provided similar types of stimulus packages? Yeah, they, they've been pretty good. Um, as it happens, for whatever reason, our, our office, I mean, we were, we were kind of in, in worse shape a year ago than we were today. So I, I don't know why, just just a trick of the fates or, or something. We, we're, we're not in bad shape financially. So uh, we didn't seek any of these funds. Uh, but my brother, who's also in Japan, and um, is, is, he's actually a street performer. Uh, if you're in Osaka and you're looking to see a really cool performer, uh, he's awesome. But his job is literally gone because his whole thing was about gathering people. And the government uh, gave him uh, some kind of a subsidy that they gave to everybody, but they gave they gave him a small business loan that I'm I think he doesn't have to pay back actually, which is fairly substantial. And and then they had another program. Uh, also for small businesses where if you could prove that you had lost uh, income because of, you know, direct consequence of uh, 
COVID, then they would give you a loan that has really good um, sort of payback uh, rates and requirements. So he got both of those. And, not, you know, he was remarkably calm. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, he was kind of seeing where things were going. And, and um, if he's an example of, of what has been happening for other people in Japan, I, I think people are, um, they, they've got a little bit of breathing room now. And, and uh, I, I suppose for in the next half year or so, uh, it's going to be okay. Uh, if this keeps going, then, you know, that's a different story, but, but at least so far, uh, yeah, they've been, they've been doing well. Um, and sorry, I can't speak to the architecture side of it, but I imagine a lot of architects are doing things like my brother, uh, in, in much the same way and, and with similar results. From a business and a and an architectural professional uh, perspective, what have you been seeing in Toronto? Oh, does it feel like people are hurting? Yeah, I'm, so I, I'm kind of in in the wrong wrong position to really answer that. But um, I mean, just going down the streets, they, they've kind of half opened some of the shops. But you know, if you're a restaurant and you can only open ten percent of your chairs, I mean, that's not sustainable. So. I mean, you could obviously see people were suffering because everything was shut down and that has to trickle up into, you know, offices and so on. I don't know how other offices here are doing. I haven't heard anybody shutting, you know, their doors because they, they've uh, really been hurt that bad, but it wouldn't surprise me uh, just because the economy in general has, has kind of not, not gone in a good direction. Have you spoken with many local architects there? about how their practice has been affected? I've spoken to a few, but uh, because I literally just got here and, you know, <laughs> a month and a half after I got here, um, it closed down. I haven't met any architects. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm, I'm kind of out of the loop here, which is a, a pity because um, I actually was planning to get more into stuff here because it's a lot easier doing it in English. But yeah, so sorry, yeah, I, I think you need to... You're going to have to hunt down some some other folks in Canada to get their you know, the proper point of view. <laughs> yeah, your Japanese is going to get rusty by the time you get back. Oh, it's already it's already <laughs> bad. Oh my god! I I can tell you this: if I could speak Japanese fluently like you can, as a Canadian, when I would go back to Canada, I would spend my entire time at Japanese restaurants just showing showing everybody how well I could speak Japanese because that's one of my, I, I would love to be able to speak either Japanese or Mandarin. That's been my, my, my fantasy my entire life. I don't know why, but, um, but I envy you because of that. Well, it makes, you know, going out for ramen a lot funner. And, and the, the cool thing about Toronto is, <laughs> you know, the, the ramen shops here are actually staffed by people who are from Japan. So when I'm feeling this, I, well, mm. I mean, I can't do it now, but when everything was open and I just felt homesick, <laughs> I just go to the ramen shop and you know you could chat. Um, that was so nice, actually. It's just, it's um, it's good to have bits of home transplanted that way. And I'm sure they're always shocked beyond belief when they hear a white guy speaking Japanese to them. They don't seem to be. I, I, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm kind of worried. Really? You know, maybe this is like a weird uh, foreigner pickup thing or something, and I'm just proving <laughs> myself to be an asshole. I, I hope not. You know, all, all <laughs> no. the Japanese students <laughs> are like not. coming into class and suddenly speaking, hey, I speak Japanese. You want to go out? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was 
a pleasure speaking to you as always, Will. Uh, Likewise. And I really appreciate you sharing your your perspective from from Toronto and also uh, with with your Japanese teaching and 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 work. That's it's very helpful to uh, to learn more about how how the rest of the world is is handling the situation. Yeah, it was is my pleasure. Um, I, I've been listening to to the podcast you've been doing, and, and it seems like everybody's being creative, and uh, feels a little bit like two thousand and eight. And I'm not sure yet if it's going to be really awesome or just as bad as it was then. And I, I'm uh, I'm going to assume right now that it, things are going to be good, and, and at least hope for that. Um, you know, for everybody, not not just me. I sure hope that's the case. I yeah. I hope so too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's it's uh, as hard as it is. It's good to stay positive and optimistic right now. Well, we need more of it. You know, if if there's any, if there is ever a time where we need to be positive, I mean, it's it's got to be now. And and if there's any a time to take action, I, I think this is it too. We need to start rethinking yeah. a whole bunch of stuff. Yep, we do. Hey, well, can I ask you? Can I ask you a question? I know we're yeah. hang. We're- getting off but um because it's 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 interesting um i don't know if you heard the one pod, uh the one discussion i had with um nikolai oh nikolai kruger yeah yeah she's she's an architect but but yeah but she doesn't these beautiful yeah, red rooms, and, right? and she was she was in she was in japan her and her husband were in japan i, I heard and, that yeah yeah so did you feel any more i mean i don't know where you were relative to that experience um but did you were you how how connected to you were you to that and and did that experience kind of that help prepare you a little bit for for this experience or did you have some measure of like oh okay well i understand how critically uh, important it is to to deal with this and the way that the governments are talking about doing it you, you know i i thought about that actually um the her experience i i suppose i had the same one uh i i was actually um I had to stay overnight at my university campus because everything shut down. Um, th- that earthquake was the scariest thing I've, I've ever experienced in my life. It was like, um, it's like being in a Mickey Mouse cartoon. You know, the early one where the trees and everything are, are dancing with him. And as he goes down the river in his boat, it, it was like, it was like that. I mean, I was, I was uh, terrified. All the buildings are perfectly safe. So I wasn't worried about the building coming down, but I was worried that my kids' buildings, which were built in the sixties, where they were going to school. I was worried about them mm-hmm. uh, pancaking or, or, you know, just, I was, I was terrified that that was really bad. Uh, but you know, luckily everyone was fine, but the follow-up to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we actually brought a, our, our bug bag with us uh, to, to Japan from Japan to Canada. So we, we've got like these collapsible, amazing collapsible hard hats uh, that fold into like a, an A4 binder size kind of thing. Wow. We, 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 we have all of the stuff that you would need for a disaster. And, you know, as it was going slowly unfolding, you know, in Japan at, at first, which is where I was first uh, experiencing the, the, the impact of this virus, it felt a lot like that, you know, like, okay, here's the thing. And we're all in this together, you know, don't start doing stupid shit, be, you know, like making a run on toilet paper and all that, which of course happens, but it, 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 and it happened exactly the same way. You know, the, the first thing there's, there's this thing, everybody freaks out. 
first thing that goes is toilet paper. The next thing is water. And then it's milk. And, you know, the last thing on the shelves is Coca-Cola. And then that's gone. And, and the exact same thing played out, except I think, you know, Japan maybe sort of said, well, we, okay, we've done this. Let's, let's not. And, and so it slowed down pretty fast and it wasn't as bad, but, you know, I was experiencing it all here. And I mean, the first thing I did was not go out and buy all that stuff because, you know, you know, it's, it was obviously selfish and stupid. Uh, and, and so in that sense, I was kind of like, it felt a little bit like deja vu, but also that I understood what was coming uh, in, in some small way, because, you know, what really happened is, is completely different. But yeah, it, it it helps to be in a crisis at least once in your life so that you don't do stupid stuff the next time one comes around and, and <laughs> you know, hopefully do better stuff. Well, to, the, to that point, I mean, the questions I was asking a lot of people that we talked, that I talked to was, and, and I guess it's, a, I'm going to frame it a little differently because you've had this experience before, but what, what did that, what did that experience teach you mentally that you brought to this so that you could steal yourself against the same fears that or similar fears so that you didn't, um, because this, I mean, none of us have experienced this level of pandemic and now we've got, a, and now I live in a community that's been like, yeah, uh, like, you know, you, you drop the bomb and then you come in and add and drop another bomb. And so just interested to hear your thoughts about how the resiliency or does it, do you need to have resiliency? Do you just need to have a fucking breakdown and fucking just, you know, <laughs> freak the fuck out? Or do you have that moment and you kind of, you know, get on with it? What's the, what's the story there? Well, yeah. I, I mean, if you feel the need to freak the fuck out, then you absolutely should. As long as you're not doing it, you know, on someone else, you know, uh, you know, it, I mean, it's, it should be kind of like, you know, freak out, you know, in your bathroom or something. I, I think quite honestly, the, the most important thing is to stay calm, make plans and be ready for when they're completely wrong and they're going to be. And um, that's really hard because, you know, people spend a lot of time figuring stuff out and, you know, it's um, it's really hard to let go of a vision of, you know, what you think things should be when the world isn't cooperating. And I, I think resilience kind of comes from being able to maintain the goals without getting too upset when, you know, the way you get there, you know, suddenly has to change. And I, I don't know how to learn that other than just to, you know, aim for that and, and do as best you can uh, going in that direction and, and, you know, help your neighbor, you know, just to start, yeah. you know, geez. All right. Well, thank you so much. Well, it was it was uh, really nice talking to you, and I would love to have you back on our podcast when when uh, when we're um, less specific, where we can, we can talk more about uh, other stuff, you know. And yeah, absolutely, including all the great work that you've been doing. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That'd be cool. All right. Yeah, that'd be super fun. Yeah, super yeah. fun. We got to do that. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Thank you. I mean, it was it was great to talk to Will. Finally, because we've known him on the on our connect for so long. And um, I, I just want to point out because I don't think it was made clear. He his his wife and children are in Toronto. So his wife and children are with him in Toronto, but none of them can go back to Japan now or I guess will can't, which means the family won't. But it will be, as we were talking before we listened to the interview, it will be, you know, they're now in the situation of um, Will's wife is Japanese and um, she will now be in this 
culture that is the one that he grew up in. And it, it, they are living this, this life of living, uh, of belonging in two places or maybe not quite belonging in either place. So I really hope we can get Will back on again. And, uh, he has always been an amazing voice of really, he's, he's, got a lot of knowledge gained from life experience. So I've always enjoyed his contributions to ArcConnect a whole lot. And it was great to talk to him. Yeah, he he is, you know, among he's on my on my favorites list among the ArcConnectors that that are in the forum. He just always brings rationality, understanding, intelligence to his his comments. And on top of that, he does really nice work. I mean, his uh will will put a link to his website from from the show notes really beautiful work super interesting guy and i love the fact that his brother followed him out to tokyo and became a, a street performer and apparently he is just killing it i mean right now during covid he's he's not as as he mentioned but when i was talking to him a few months ago when when or not a few months maybe last year when he was in la yeah his his brother is actually making quite a an amazing life for himself as a street entertainer <laughs> As a street performer, that takes balls, man. <laughs> I could not I do know. that. <laughs> and he's got, Will's got some stories to tell, man, about the, about being a professional and about what happened to him. And, and I mean, just re- seeing, reading his writing about it, just like, I'd like to just hear the story being told. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's move on to our next, our next uh, conversation. This one is with uh, Dylan Jones. He's an unlicensed architect, uh, or I guess unlicensed designer, as you're technically allowed to uh, to say. Mm-hmm. He's worked as a BIM coordinator, and uh, and Dylan wh- is where is he located? Dylan was interviewed in um, in Los Angeles. He, uh, uh, yeah. I love that that he uh, uh, decamped to Los Angeles. So um, yeah. I can't remember which one of you guys spoke to him. I did. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was the interesting part that the internet connection in the office that he was in or the, or the internet connection uh, between where he lives in port, just outside of Portland and his office was so horrible <laughs> that it made work, made working on, on uh, Revit models um, either through, uh, I think it was a VPN. I think we were working with a VPN. So awful. It was corrupting models, and that's the big problem. With uh, he had to uh, <laughs> go uh, what twelve hundred was that like a thousand miles? miles City drove a thousand miles <laughs> <laughs> to, to his parents' house in, in in Southern California to get a better internet connection, just so he could do his uh, do the work that he was working on. So yeah, that that was that was pretty interesting. He definitely has a has that LA vibe. It's kind of it's very admirable. Yeah. I'll say that. Very takes very, things very easily and um not uh super amped up. But yeah, it was it was just about I think he was gonna go on a bike ride. Yeah, he was. <laughs> All right. Well let's take a listen. So my name's Dylan Jones. Uh I work at an architecture firm in Portland. Um I'm technically project staff, which is just unlicensed architectural staff. Uh we sort of denote interior design, inter, unlicensed interior design staff separately. Uh, specifically, I work on senior housing projects. Before COVID-19, we were more of a um, everyone inside the office, day-to-day operations. There wasn't a lot of people working from home, except um, for maybe our marketing department every Friday. And we have a fairly smart marketing department post um, shelter in place. A lot of us had to work from home. Temporarily, the projects I've been working on were um, put on hold. So I was actually furloughed for three weeks until 
the client I was working for decided to feel comfortable pursuing the project further into construction documents and permit. The biggest hurdle for us working in COVID-19 is, unlike many um, architecture offices I've spoken with around the U.S., either through interviews or through talking with friends, we were not prepared to work um, over the cloud. We're still heavily server-based. And so we had to figure out a solution, which was to go to a VPN setup. And that was a lot of incurred costs on our office that we weren't really prepared for. And our IT department basically had a blank check to resolve the issue. Most of us during shelter-in-place have had to take our computer towers home. We're not working on laptops. And so we're all working in our wherever we can. Um, Even though I'm I live in Portland full time. I actually had to um, drive all the way down to Southern California, about a thousand miles to my parents' house and actually set up shop work from their house because where I live in Portland Metro, I don't actually have good enough internet. So I'm I'm taking working remotely to the 10th degree, <laughs> which is exciting because I get to spend more time with family. Downside is, is all of my family is currently re- my parents are retired. So they're they're in a much different stage of their life. They're not working from home. And so it it's a big learning curve because essentially for eight hours a day they have a room in their house they can't go into and learning all these new dial this new um dynamic of socializing and working through and making sure that I have a level of focus. Unfortunately, um the way we have our computers our VPN set up is that sometimes it takes fifteen to twenty minutes to load a Revit model or uh, to sync. And so the level of communication has significantly gone up since then because typically just asking a question or trying to just sync to the model was not an, an issue. But now having gone from working in an office to working remotely and having so many issues with our with our office servers with corrupt, corrupting files, we've had to really communicate to each other who's in the model, who's syncing, and have a sync schedule and make sure that we are doing the utmost we can to be aware that every all of our work that would take maybe two or three hours is now going to take six or eight. And we also need to be prepared if a, if a corruption happens, how do we mitigate that? So I've been having to archive models daily, create new centrals frequently, uh, daily, much more than we would typically do, which is usually for us every week, just to make sure that if something does happen, we're prepared and we can continue to move forward so we don't lose any work because our time is now significantly more valuable. Yeah. So how how long has uh, Portland been in, uh, in shelter-in-place mode? So it probably would be about the t- March 23rd or 25th. I think March 23rd was that Monday. That was the day that I got furloughed. Uh, And then we, I think 25th was about the, I think was the first day that we were in shelter in place. So I think we've been in shelter in place about three weeks, almost a month total. So since I'm not in Portland itself, I'm down in California. The experiences that I've been dealing with are much different than what most people would be dealing with. I, I, I get to interact with family all the time. I went from a one, uh, essentially a studio to a 2,600 square foot house. So I have a lot more flexibility to move around. 
And I think for the most part, it's been fairly from what I've been talking with people who are still working in Portland from home. And from what I can understand, people are still going outside. They're trying to maintain social distance practices. Portland, when it starts to get warm in the spring, because uh, we get fairly we get fairly mild winters, but they're also typically wet. This is since it's sunny and warm. There's usually more people out, so people are just kind of being drawn to the sun outside, and so there's a lot more people out walking, biking. I know they've been starting. The Oregon itself has shut down a lot of the state parks, um, the national forests, the ski resorts. Um, some of the national parks have also closed down, just to keep people um, from interacting to slow the transmitting of the virus from person to person. Though I know at this time, from what I've read, there is no timeline on when they're going to slowly remove the shelter in place regulations and allow everyone to go back to work. So what have you, what have you gleaned from this um, just under one month period uh, that's helped you either work differently? I mean, it sounds like the one thing is communication, communication, communication. Um, But has there been anything else that that you've kind of, that's been coming to you? You know, and just so you know, one of the um, things that we share is I'm a practitioner as well. So I'm working remotely here in Minneapolis. And Mm. um, we're doing a VPN and our our throw is a a little bit shorter. Um, But... uh, so I've had to, I've, what I've learned is that I really like working remotely. Um, I, I like that experience. I'm able to get more work done and, um, and not be stressed out by having to travel to an office. So what, what's, been, what's been a takeaway for you that, that you kind of uh, want to either avoid or um, look forward to using in the future? I, I actually, I don't mind the working from home. I, my current commute from when I'm based in Portland is about an hour and a half. I don't actually live in the Portland city proper. I live in a subsidiary city. And so I, I drive in and, and sort of that's my primary mode of transportation. Then I either take a bus or bike as my secondary. So I'm, I'm sort of multimodal, if you will. I, I like actually waking up and being able to sort of work my own hours and have that flexibility of, oh, if I wanted to go for a, a bike ride or, uh, you know, go have lunch. I'm not sort of tied to anything. I feel like I do get a lot more work done because I don't feel like I'm distracted as much, but I also have gleaned that a lot of the things that I've been doing my day while I was at the office ate up my time anyway, you know, going to go talk to someone on a, our office is, a, is on two floors. And so going up and talking to someone upstairs, if I have a question or being able to sit down in a meeting with physical documentation um, and reviewing it with a with a project manager or other staff was nice. I think now we've been sort of on this um, this teeter totter of sort of being able to what do we what do we physically have at our desk in terms of a drawing set now versus what do we have that's all digital? And I think this technology has given us an opportunity, or this this shelter in place gives us an opportunity to push technology to the nth degree and allowed us to really see, oh, we, we actually don't need to print as much as we're currently printing, or we don't need to have everyone in the office to get all of the work done. 
but it also comes down to it's not the downside to that is like I like the fact of going into an office, keeping work at work and home at home. And I think the other benefit to this was is a conversation I had with a principal maybe a year ago about always being prepared for some calamity because when I got furloughed, I didn't have they gave me an idea of when. I was going to possibly be back from furlough, but there was no guarantee that I was going to be. And so during this time, I've also been updating my portfolio as well, because you never know when the next financial crisis is going to hit and or when something like a pandemic is going to hit. That's going to change the way you work, where you're, how you make money and being prepared for all eventualities, regardless of whether it's something small, like someone goes, can't come into work because they're sick or they're retiring and making sure that you're always prepared, whether whether it's personal with a portfolio ready to, to apply to other uh, firms or jobs, or being able to communicate, which is sort of the theme of making sure everyone knows where, where you're putting everything, making sure it's labeled appropriately, and confirming that every everything is done the way it needs to be, because our time is very valuable. I guess the one uh, one last question I've been asking everybody um, because part of it is that um, I've been going through my own like struggle with this uh, situation, and so like the first first like week or ten days I was kind of panicked and I I couldn't get my hands around what was going on, Um, but Mm -hmm. after after a period of time I felt less like I was falling and I actually had some stability. Um, mentally, um, how, how mm-hmm. has, how has this, how has this impacted you and, and your psyche and, or your emotional state? I think it was a really, it was really bad. Honestly, I think I, I got a little depressed because, you know, this pandemic hits, I get furloughed. You, you sort of lose, you don't lose the reason why you wake up in the morning. You have to find a new sense of purpose. And so, but to add to that level of complexity is like, there's nothing open that I can go do. Uh, I can't go skiing. I can't go, I could go ride a bike, but I can't go to a, like a, for, to a brewery. And so I had to refine, I had to go find or discover what to fill my time with because I couldn't just, you know, I didn't want to wake up every every morning while I was furloughed and be like, well, I have nothing to do. I guess we'll just go watch TV for eight hours right? or just check email or social media and then go back to sleep. That That's not a way to live. And so what I decided to do was do something about it and um, do some continuing educations for accreditations and certifications that I already has that I knew I was going to have to get done anyway. And so the time I, I sort of finished the continuing education hours, it was a blessing in disguise because I got a phone call from one of the principals saying the project that I was working on um, was going to proceed again. So it was sort of like this, I'd, I had, I had filled the void with nothing to do for a very short window. And then it was replaced, then it was sort of replaced again by work. Um, I guess the now, since I'm back at work, I'm still sort of struggling with my workflow and sort of figuring still what to do with my day. Cause now my day is filled with eight hours of work, but what do I do before and after that? Now uh, I, I have to sort of think, think through that and, and sort of fill that time. Cause I, I now don't have to commute to work, but I, I'm getting back 
my personal experience, two to three hours of my day. And I'm not exhausted. I'm not the same level of exhausted from, from work as I would typically be because I'm commuting and having to deal with all the sights and sounds of other people and different personality types that don't mesh with mine yeah. and putting on a professional face. I can, I can tune that out or I don't have to deal with that at all. It's interesting. Every single person I talk to has had different aspects of exactly what I've been going through. So when you yeah. talk about that, I'm like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And it's funny. There's some people that I really enjoy working with at my office. And there are some people that I will muster through working with them on a daily basis, but they really, I, I would consider myself an extroverted person, but sometimes as an extroverted person, I also get um, uh, drained by the day. And so I need, I also need that time to recuperate. Yeah. And so, so now I actually have more energy when I'm done with my work day, cause I don't have to communicate to the people that don't give me value perceived value right well dylan um it's it's been a pleasure talking with you um what i've come to find from from everyone um that i've spoken to thus far is that um i think there's some sense of uh connectedness in that fact that we're all experiencing very similar emotions and experiences and and challenges um and it's it's been helpful for me at least um i think it'll be helpful for others to hear um you know your story and how Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to be too dissimilar from anybody else's, which is, which is, there's some measure of, um, of feeling like I know where I, I know I can conceptualize that we're all in this, this idea that we're in this together, but, uh, it's, it's, at least it's reassuring that these experiences that you and others that are having are not um, too dissimilar from what everybody else mm-hmm. is going to be experiencing. So. What I find is humorous, though, is that for all of us that do have pets, I do not. Our pets are getting used to this new normal of us being home all the time. And um, I talked I talk to my brother fairly frequently, and he actually had to – his office can't um, – he doesn't work in architecture. He works in a very different industry. Um, but his, his office, there was a gentleman that was retiring during this during this pandemic. And so everyone was like, all right, we're going to go into the office and sign in the retirement card, but we will not all go in at the same time just to maintain physical distancing. And my brother has a dog that's just uh, over a year old. And so he left for one day and he's been home for three weeks and she's just running around the house. His roommate was telling him this and whimpering because she couldn't find him. So (laughs) it's going to be a very, once we all go back to work, our pets, Maybe not the cat, yeah. but the dog will be very upset with us the first day we're home or come back from work. Exactly. <laughs> so, Dylan, thanks a lot. I, I certainly do appreciate your time this afternoon or this morning. All right. Thank you, Ken, so much. Thank you. So one of the things that I started thinking about when listening to Dylan, and he's not, I'm, I'm assuming he's young. He didn't talk about having kids or anything, and he's, he's not yet licensed. Um, I'm thinking about how difficult the relocate the the work from home is in a lot of ways for younger people and it's something i've been thinking about a lot um that 
you know, for those of us that have a, a house and a yard and, uh, you know, we, we've, we've been through a recession already. And so we know we can probably survive this one too. Um, I'm just thinking about how much harder it has been for younger people. You know, Dylan had to, to drive a thousand miles to get a decent internet connection. Um, and then he was, you know, he's living with his, with his parents and it's, it's not that kind of independence that you might hope that you would have as a professional in your life. But I mean, he seems to be doing great at it and it sounds like it's going well. But I do think that in many ways, this has been harder on younger people in our field than it has been on middle-aged people. Granted, if you're older, sometimes it's hard to adapt to change. But I feel like what we've seen is that most firms were able to just sort of become remote all of a sudden overnight. And that adaptability is possible with our practice. And so my hope is that younger people will be able to show older firm owners that it is possible to have this kind of flexibility in our work lives. And, uh, you know, this is a place where I hope that the the way that young people have been able to be flexible and adaptable is going to help change all of us to make it a better, a better field. So, yeah, I thought, you know, I think, I, I think I'm finally getting at what you're saying, what you've been saying and other people have been saying about uh, working remotely for young people. You know, it's easier to come over when, when they do, that's the, that's the big challenge, right? The big challenge. When I was working uh, early in my career, a lot of what I was drawing was already hand drawn by principals we're still using mm-hmm. their uh, their main lines and stuff and they're just penciling it out real quick and it's easier to for them to to draw than it is to think out the beat the details in the drawing uh, the hand drawing than it is for them to get on the computer whereas i just need a real quick i just need to kind of like i sketch for myself so i can draw it on the mm-hmm. computer and i don't get too caught up in like main lines and crap like that i kind of have a good enough hand that i can do it myself and that that's hard is that, that it's even hard for me i don't like producing red lines for people mm-hmm. to work on i just yeah. don't I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I just hate everything about it. <laughs> so I imagine, you know, not being there and having the resources and having all of that stuff, it, it could lead to very idle, you know, and I think that that's, and I think that is where the, the tension might be. And if I wish, wish principals would articulate that a little bit better or people running firms or whatever, just say it, you know, part of the problem is, is that I don't, I don't want to be spending you know, fuck all time, you know, drawing all these red lines that you're just going to, I'm going to spend eight hours drawing it. You're going to spend four hours putting in a computer. There's 12 hours. I could have just said, (laughs) draw it yourself. Let's come back and discuss. That's what I've been telling younger people. I'm like, listen, here's what you have. You have stuff. Just try to figure it out yourself. Print it out to me and I'll take a look at it and we'll kind of work through it. I'd rather you try to figure it out than me to sit there and read. Definitely. But I will admit to this, and Ken, you know what I'm going to say, is that a a couple weeks ago, as we were shredding towards (laughs) the deadline in my firm, I called Ken and asked him how to do something in Revit because I was too embarrassed to ask my young people that work under me how to do it. Like I know they've shown me before and I couldn't remember and I was just too embarrassed. So I called my friend Ken. (laughs) So, I mean, that's, you know, us older people need to be okay to adapt. We need to be like, okay, this is the way this is the way business is going now. This is the way production is done. We need to be able to adapt to it. So, yeah, it's it's yeah. and part of the problem too is I you, you and I are at a point in our career where we're still fucking drawing details. Yeah, <laughs> we're still putting buildings together. That kind of insane bullshit is just like it, that's not you know when I'm doing my small stuff, my little projects, I get I get a lot of pleasure out of doing that because it's yeah. it's mine. It's it's my project, it's my client. It's it's I get a lot of pro- pleasure out of doing that. But when it's you know, when it's firm, you know, and I'm like, you know what, I'd rather be just running to projects and going to meetings and talking to clients and going to construction meetings, new and all that stuff. That's where I really get 
the most juice out of this profession when I'm working for somebody else is doing that. Yeah. This other bullshit is just like, you know, I'm 50 fucking two years old. I'm supposed to be running, running firms at this point. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? Oh, this profession. What are we going to do about it? <laughs> hopefully, hopefully things will. Yeah. Hopefully ch- change will come. So you, Paul, you talked to Sobia, right? Yes. Yeah. So let's move on to our final conversation for today. This is with uh, Sobia Saeda. She is an architect with with about, uh, I think, 15 or 20 years of experience. As I recall, uh, she lives and works out of Santa Fe, New Mexico. She went there from Dallas, which is a very, very different scene. And uh, let's listen to this conversation with Sobia Saeda. So my name is Sobia Sayeda. I have been in Santa Fe for um, about 13, 14 years now. Um, I moved here from Dallas, which is a completely different economy. Um, Here in Santa Fe, um, I've been focused on mainly residential architecture because that's what bulk of our um, our trade is. We don't have a lot of commercial um, work going on. So that's what I've been engaged with um, over the years. You know, since um, the recession back in 2009, I've been working by myself, um, mainly supporting other architects in town, you know, whether it's design or project management, construction administration, you know, construction documents. So I've been kind of like on and off doing that for various people. Um, this uh, Since last October, I've been um, employed by what's considered, you know, like a in Santa Fe, it's considered a large firm. Um, anytime we have, you know, five, five people, four, five, six people, that's considered a large firm. A lot of our firms are very, very small. There are a lot, a lot of sole proprietors, um, and especially people like myself who are self-employed, but then they support um, other greater architecture community. So since October, I've been working with this architecture firm that focuses on residential, and it's. Um, you know, residential and specialty, um, super specialized um, trade, and you know things things were things were completely fine up until um, you know March hit us, middle of March. Um, we had um, somewhere around um, seven projects that we were focusing on, and all of a sudden, you know, things kind of like started to slow down, and. Um, you know, when we had directive to work from home and practice social distancing, I um, it was luckily here it was um, spring break um, for our school, so a lot of us were planning on taking some time off anyway around that time. So it didn't affect us uh, greatly, but still, um, you know, we kind of like worked in and out of the office that week, and it wasn't until after that week, that Friday, when we we're like, okay, so we're gonna have to figure out a new way of working. And we had a very tiny discussion in the office at that time. Um, the principal approached us and you know said that um, we might be looking at something different. And you know by that Monday, of course, we were directed to work from home. And you know we were offered to bring our computer computers home and set up home offices, and everything was very smooth. And at that time, you know, of course, like having gone through the last recession, um, thinking, you know, just like really thinking that I would be the first one um, to go because, you know, I'm, I'm their senior associate. I'm their, one of the, you know, more full-time person there. And um, 
that week went by and I wasn't the person to to go. Um, we had another person that that they asked to um, to step down from their position. And um, so the following two weeks were, you know, they went smoothly. We were concerned about our workload. We had a ton of projects that uh, we were in the in the process of um, being interviewed, and we didn't have any contracts on those. But all those people said, you know, to wait and hold off on moving forward. And the ones that we do have in the pipelines, you know, were having trouble finding uh, finding the right contract or a contractor or finding the right right match to start construction on that. Um, everybody's kind of, you know, a little, little more concerned and, um, you know, just in a holding pattern. Um, that's what it seems like. So with that, um, just last Sunday, um, I was, um, I was furloughed. Um, almost everybody in the office is in that position right now. And right now, like, we don't know when we're going to go back. I am told that, you know, once we, on this particular project, once we do know that things are moving forward, um, I will be asked to come back and help them. And, but it could be another month, month and a half, two months. We don't, we don't know. Do you feel and like I, the, do you feel like the work has stopped because of the uh, kind of financial concerns from the clients or because of the, the difficulty with, with working through this, this, uh, period of pandemic and, and quarantine? I think it has to do with the first, um, you know, concern. I think it's more of uh, people, people are just like waiting and watching um, market. Um, you know, I, I, I believe that that has more to do with it because in the meantime, um, I'm hearing that a lot of my other colleagues in town, they are conducting construction administration. They're, you know, their sites are still, um, I mean, they had some setback and they had to go through, you know, take some measures to be safe and, act, you know, be around other coworkers in a safe environment. But besides that, the, you know, construction has not stopped. Um, I'm also hearing that from um, a lot of, you know, realtors that they have changed the way they're doing business. So they're, you know, they're doing more video walkthroughs, but they're still conducting business. So I think it was the first first week when Santa Fe actually went into social distancing measures, which was middle of March. It was that first week when people were trying to figure figure everything out. You know, they were concerned. We didn't have enough information. We didn't, you know, have a clear directive from our governor at that time. Um, but a lot of information came in towards the middle and end of that week. So people adjusted to that. And, you know, now you, you see all the construction workers with uh, you know, gloves and masks and they're practicing social distancing. At the same time, I think most of, most of, you know, our clients were basically, let's see what happens. You know, Santa Fe is in a unique, um, it's in a unique place where, you know, we have a lot of um, second, third homes and a lot of, you know, basically just vacation homes. Um, people come here for Christmas and um, Thanksgiving, but they have their homes here. And so when, you know, when it comes to that, when it's not your primary home and you're pulling money from you know, money market, uh, it makes it challenging for people to say, okay, yeah, go ahead, you know, do this. 
Um, so that's that's what we're we're seeing more of. What does it feel like in Santa Fe right now? Right now, um, I would say that it it probably feels like um, the way it did maybe thirty years ago. You know, with uh-huh. not too many not too many cars running around. I mean, people are still mobile. Um, I I go get groceries once every week, week and a half. Um, we still go out to um, you know for hiking. We have amazing hiking um, in Santa Fe, so we're I'm, I'm still doing that and still trying to get that activity going. But you know, besides that, it's it's just. Um, it's it's very interesting to see. We're a tourist town, so we get a lot of a lot of traffic from Texas, and then we have a lot of Californians who come here um, for vacationing. And right now, you know, hotels are empty. Um, um, our downtown plaza is completely empty. Um, it's it's just it's very surreal to see how you know, all these parking spots in downtown that everybody's always fighting for are available. And um, so it's, it feels it feels a little, you know, a little strange. But at the same time, I have also noticed um, I, I live in a part of town that's um, you know, fairly old with a lot of dirt roads and a lot of, you know, tiny, um, almost like one one lane windy roads. And usually... You know, there's the traffic is just a mess down here. But what I've noticed is with the lack of cars driving around, um, there are people walking around their dogs and walking around with their kids. And they actually make eye contact now. You know, everything has slowed down, which is it's refreshing to see. Like people are actually making eye contact and smiling, sharing smiles. They may be, you know, 10 feet apart. They may switch the side of the road as they see you approaching. But at the same time, I think they're more conscious of other human beings. I've noticed that as well in uh, in my walks and in, in, around the neighborhood. And it's uh, it's nice. It's nice to see that that. Uh, continued desire for connection, you know, especially now that people are so disconnected from one another physically. Have you, have you uh, managed to stay healthy and your family is healthy? Yes. Um, you know, we, yeah, we've been, we've been lucky. We um, have been, you know, we've, we've been healthy. We've been safe. Um, most of our friends, um, I, I have not been personally affected by this. Um, I, um, I do have, um, I do, I do have a, um, my brother's wife, uh, we believe that, um, you know, she was affected by, by, by the disease. Um, but there's, you know, they, they live in a part of, uh, part of the country where, where the tests were not as available. So she was never mm-hmm. tested, but she did go through the whole, you know, two weeks of, you know, sickness and um but besides besides that everybody else in the family has been has been he- healthy our friends here are healthy but it, it's it's really you know it's it's interesting that it's you know weighing everybody's minds um and everybody's bodies so you know we've been connecting with people that I'm used to seeing uh once or twice a week and having you know sharing meals with them uh, you know whether that's at our place or their place or somewhere outside I have not seen them since March 14th 
I, you know, it's been, it's been over a month now. I have not seen them and we've been FaceTiming and it's, um, it's nice to see them on FaceTime, but at the same time, it's not the same thing as, you know, hugging and touching and, you know, just, just spending time with each other. So it's a very, very strange time and it's very, um, you know, it's, it's very different and different times. Um, we definitely have to adjust to, to these new way of living for the yeah. time being. Well, it's, uh, it's probably going to last a little longer than we were hoping, but hopefully it, it will uh, feel like a brief moment in time eventually in the, in the future. But yeah. thank you so much for, for uh, sharing your story with us. Um, and I wish you the best of luck and health moving forward. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time and thank you for reaching out to me. All right. Have you guys been to Santa Fe? No. I have. Donna, you've been there. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful place. A couple of my best friends live there. And I mean, I can really, I could really empathize with her concerns about you know, what we're going through right now, because the, it's, it's a city that really does rely a lot on, on tourism, mm-hmm. which is having a huge impact. One of my, one of my friends that's in Santa Fe, uh, he's an architect who actually recently shifted his focus and, uh, bought a, a small hotel, uh, called the Parador for anybody out there in Santa Fe or planning to go to Santa Fe. And he's, he, he's recently been in the process of converting the hotel to a nonprofit, providing housing for uh, homeless artists because, you know, it's, it's uh yeah, I mean, the travel industry doesn't really exist right now. So he's, he's making, you know, the best out of a horrible situation and, and doing something that's really good for the community. This is Evan Geisler, by the way, who has, who has made, made a presence on our connect. But anyways, going back to, uh, uh, Sobia, as she mentioned, most architecture work, especially residential work really does cater to the people that have vacation homes out there. So it's, uh, I can really empathize with her concern about, you know, the slowdown in work. You know, I think areas like that are especially hit hard. Yeah. She mentioned though, one of the larger that what, what is a larger firm for Santa Fe? And I couldn't help but wonder if it's my firm that I worked at in Philly who opened a Santa Fe office shortly after I left that and, and came to Indiana. And that's AOS Architects. Two of my best friends, one of them is one of the principals at AOS and another woman that I went to college with both also live in Santa Fe too. So, I, I mean, I, I feel like I know the city pretty well. I've been there many, several times and uh, it, yeah, it's a place that depends on, as Dave Hickey wrote, people who can afford to get their $10 latte and spend their morning sitting at a, uh, at a cafe outside enjoying the view of the mountains. <laughs> so yeah, that, it's, that kind of, yeah. The, the economic health of that city can be quite deceiving because, you know, New Mexico the, yeah. <laughs> is, is a very poor state, you know, with, Extremely. with, uh, yep. with a lot of economic hardships, but Santa Fe can really, you know, come across like, you know, a veil type resort at times just because right. of all the money that comes in temporarily. Um, at a time like this, you know, that's that that doesn't exist. So it's it goes to show how much, you know, how much of an impact, it, you know, a situation like this can have based on where you're located. Definitely. 
So I hope that things keep going well in Santa Fe for my friends and yours that are there. And I'm really fascinated. Maybe we need to do a follow-up with your friend who's doing the hotel for homeless artists. That sounds really cool. <laughs> for sure. I've talked to him about that, actually. And, you know, he he used to work at the firm that your uh, your friend started up in, in Santa Fe. So oh, did he? Okay. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a small <laughs> it's world. A small Every, everything gets connected. Yeah. <laughs> It's, everybody in Santa Fe knows each other. I know a lot Thank of, you. I've got a lot of friends here in LA that are from Santa Fe. And uh, as soon as I mentioned that I, that I know somebody from Santa Fe, they're like, oh, who is it? They always yeah. know who they are. So, all right. Well, that wraps up our fifth episode. There is one more coming up later this week. We hope that you've been enjoying this series. I've been hearing a lot of great feedback actually from people who have been seeming to really sincerely enjoy uh, hearing stories from other people there it's it's really hitting home for the for the people that I've been speaking with so that's great to hear again i mean we're we're wrapping this this up but it's it's likely that we're going to maybe do something similar in the next few weeks maybe follow up with some of the people that we've spoken with to see how things are going so we hope you've been enjoying it. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, as always, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag Arcanect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arcanect.com. And uh, if you feel so obliged, please uh, give us a rating and a review on iTunes. It, it helps increase the awareness of the podcast, and we really appreciate any kind of feedback, whether good or bad, but you know, good is so much better. <laughs> um, all right. So thank you again. And we'll talk to you next time. Talk to you next time.